Hello and welcome to today's episode of Consider This with Western Pest. I'm your host, Mark Bretz. I have a very special guest today. Consider this. For all the leaders out there, and for those that aspire to lead a team one day, wouldn't it be helpful to hear from people that are doing it well to see what contributes to their success? My guest today will share his perspective on some of his key learnings over the years. So I'll take a moment to introduce our guest, Jerry Galoff. I know him well enough to know that he is not the type of person that spends much time talking about himself, his title, his career trajectory, or his accomplishments. So I'll do my best to get him to do it anyway. Anyway, Jerry is currently the president of Rollins Specialty Brands. The title is a bit misleading because he does far more than just lead the Rollins Specialty Pest Control Brands, but more on that in a second. Anyway, welcome, Jerry. Hey, thanks, Mark. So as I mentioned, you certainly have responsibility for far more than just the specialty brands. Can you start by telling us what are the specialty brands? Specialty brands is a group of individual brands uh, within the pest control industry that have a unique history, a unique culture, um, things that are very, um, I guess, specific to what they do, who they are, a unique identity in, in the industry. And we... I've made the choice to keep those brands separate from other Rollins brands to try to be able to leverage their uniqueness and um, what they bring to the table. Interesting. And as I mentioned, you know, that's a big part of your job, but it's not the only part of your job. So can you share with us what are some of the other responsibilities you have besides those operational brands? In addition to my responsibilities operationally for specialty brands, I also have uh, all of human resources and training for the company. So how do you find yourself balancing all these functions? you got training, human resources, and these operations. How do you do that? Well, I guess I'm not convinced that I do it very well. Um, there's a lot of juggling. Uh, it depends on the time of year, certain responsibilities. Uh, you know, I, if you figure half my time would be devoted to the operational job and half of my time to the human resource side, um, that would be an ideal situation. However, there's certain times and certain situations where it feels like I'm 80% one way and 20% the other, and then it comes back a month later, I'm 80% on the HR side and 20% on the operations for a period of time, and then it kind of levels out. So it, there's really a, like an, an ebb and flow of re- work and responsibility that comes with managing managing time, managing activities, managing priorities. Um, it's... Um, I'd say I'm still finding my way with that. Mm-hmm. And how long have you been in a leadership role throughout your career? Well, um, forcing you to think back a lot of years, right? Yeah, I suppose. Uh, I, you know, I, I guess my perspective on uh, being in a leadership role uh, may be a little different, is because I look at it as though just about everyone's a leader. Um, it doesn't matter your your actual title. Uh, everybody, everyone has the opportunity to be a leader. So if you if I r- truly went back in time, it'd probably be my first roles in high school as um, you know whether it was playing athletics or um, at my first job. I was actually a uh, some of the folks make fun of me, but I was a lifeguard, and that took that took uh you know when you're a lifeguard in the ocean in an ocean type of responsibility not just like a, a swimming pool full of kids 
um, that, that also took a lot of leadership. So I would say, you know, leadership for me goes back to when I was probably 15 years old. So I can't imagine how they make fun of you for being a lifeguard. Isn't that cool? I don't, I don't you know, I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's cool when you're a teenager. It's the job you always want, right? Yeah. And that, that was what I aspired to do. But these days, too many people around the company like to uh, Photoshop my head on uh, pictures of lifeguards and have fun with me. And they poke, they poke a lot of fun at me. So I suspect I know who some of those guilty parties are. So, yeah. But interesting perspective. So you're not just looking at it from the perspective of a leadership role and a management role, but it actually dates much further back, uh, which is a very interesting way to, to look at it. So um, I've known you for a little while now, but but probably when we got the idea to bring you into to this discussion and to join our podcast was during the 2018 PCT Awards Ceremony. I had the the pleasure of sitting in when when you were awarded the uh, Crown Leadership Award in 2018. Um, and, and you're very understated about this. At, at any given time in our discussion, I felt like I was more excited than you about, about everything because you just, you know, you, I know you were proud to get the award, but you don't go talking about it too often. Um, but I was very impressed. Uh, and just for our listeners, just give you a sense of what this is. The Crown Leadership Award is an annual award given by the uh, PCT Magazine to pest control professionals, uh, educators, industry distributors, or association officials who uh, uphold the highest standards of industry ethics and uh, support the industry, give back to the industry, and have made a, a positive contribution to the industry. And as I mentioned, Jerry was one of the recipients this this past year in 2018. And during your acceptance speech, I recall specifically you acknowledging some folks in the room as mentors to you. There were other winners that you, you kind of called them out and said, hey, I want to make sure you know how I feel about uh, the impact that you had on my career. And I was really impressed with that. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? I suppose when I look back on my career, my development, um, particularly uh, when I, I guess, became more acutely aware of the role of mentors probably goes back to my college days is I guess as I was up there giving a, a speech I really didn't want to give um, as I looked in the audience I saw people I was looking at the faces that um, had a great deal of impact on me when I was in my 20s um, and those were the those those people had a tremendous influence on my life and and uh, served as role models so I always viewed I be, over time I began to view mentors as um, number one recognizing that you know as 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 a mentor that's a that's a big responsibility to put on someone to say hey, you're my mentor because all of us have flaws all of us have um, things we're not good at um, what I what I really learned is to look for the good look for the good in people look for um, the positive attributes that I, I said, you know, gosh, if I could emulate this one thing from this person that d they do exceptionally well and take that and, and be the best at it um, and use that as like the gold standard for how I'd like to be, uh, that's how I approached mentors. So as I interacted with people and I built relationships with people, I would look for those things uh, that I admired about them um, and attempt to say, Gosh, what if I could do it that good, or what if I could be like them in that in that specific characteristic? And so, over time, I built sort of a portfolio of mentors. I'm sure these people had no idea, but I was constantly looking to say, you know, um, how can I improve myself by emulating some of the things that I admired about them? 
You know, it's interesting, and you, you just touched on it. So it, it seems like some of these people were informal mentors. To your point, they didn't know. Uh, were there ever times where you actually had a formal mentor relationship? I actually don't. Um, I, number one, I never asked someone to be my mentor. It just kind of evolved more naturally. Um, and I, I, I don't think I ever considered it, or, nor they would have considered it to be a formal mentoring uh, type of relationship. Mm-hmm. So it was, of- it was what we, it was kind of organic, and it, it just, it, it, it just evolved over time. Yeah, what's interesting is these people maybe had no idea how you felt about the value they brought, but the fact that you acknowledge them in the audience, I'm sure, meant a lot to them. And another question around this is, do you consider, could your boss be a mentor, or, or is that a different relationship? Could, could it work both ways that they're also your boss, but they're also a mentor? I think you can work both ways. I think it's um, mostly up to you and your approach to it. Um, don't expect your boss to perceive it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't don't expect that. But um, again, I just think those relationships are what what you make of those relationships. At the same time, um, you have to identify. You know, this may sound selfish, but you you have to identify what it is that you want out of it, out of that relationship, and how it's going to benefit you. And that's up to you to help to to, to define that. Mm-hmm. One of the things I've learned is, you know, some of the best leaders in the in in the world actually have formal mentor relationships. And I don't know if everyone realizes I had the privilege of of uh, hearing Marshall Goldsmith speak at, a, at an event that I was at uh, within the last few months. And he shared a story about Alan Mulally, the former CEO of Ford. And he was actually his mentor. It was a formal mentor relationship. And listening to the dynamics there, I'm thinking, geez, I wonder if a lot of people even realize is a very successful CEO by all accounts, did a tremendous job at Ford. And it turns out behind the scenes, he's having conversations with, with Marshall Goldsmith about this. And, and certainly uh, to this day, uh, feels very strongly about the benefit that it brought him. So, yeah, I, I would say it doesn't matter how how high up you go. Um, everyone, anyone can always benefit from the quality of those relationships and your your willingness to be open. Uh, you know, if you're the president of the United States, you should have mentors and advisors and people you listen to. And just as if you're, say, a, a technician or a salesperson or a company, you should be be seeking out those opportunities. As you look at, at leadership and, and good leaders and bad leaders, I'm sure you've, you've seen both. Are there any common traits that you fairly consistently see in those top performing leaders? Um, so uh, the, the first word that comes to my mind is, is humility. Um, you know, you can't take yourself too seriously. And granted, my my traits may be different than someone else's, I, and it's probably through the perception of what I would find um, important. But um, you know, uh, I'm I'm okay with a lot of confidence. With people having confidence, I'm not okay with arrogance. Um, that's kind of the opposite of of uh, humility. Uh, but I think that's a that's a very important trait that people can't take themselves too seriously. And and when you do that. Humility is important because when you do that, you can build trust faster. Mm-hmm. Uh, it breaks down walls, breaks down barriers. You can get to know people. People become more vulnerable if you're you're more more, more vulnerable with them. Um, and um, just that one trait all by itself can can mm-hmm. speed relationships up uh, mm-hmm. uh, and 
make things happen faster. Mm-hmm. Another thing I'm curious about is, is there any leadership advice that you've gotten at any point in your career that still kind of resonates with you that is, you know, you kind of keep with you? Anything that's been powerful or, or, or uh, something you've shared with other people to say, this, this made a difference for me? Well, probably the, um, the most significant it was a tough lesson for me to learn, but it, but it really came back to this concept of servant leadership. I'd been in a situation where uh, me and a group of my peers had made, a, in my opinion, a, a bad choice about how we were prioritizing, how we were going to use our time. And we chose to go do something that was um, important to us. At the same time, we had another group of individuals that we should have been spending our time with and interacting with, and, and we chose an opposite path. And at that point, our, at the time, uh, our CEO of the company brought us all in a room and lectured us about um, our, you know, he expected us to be servant leaders and to be involved with and put other people's needs and priorities first before what we needed to do. Um, and we got a good, I would say, 30-minute lecture on, on this, and I felt about three inches tall at the end of it, and I realized what what kind of an opportunity we missed, not uh, by focusing ourselves ourselves and our energy on, on helping other people and being involved with other people and supporting other people. Um, and so the and for me, that's where this whole concept of when I became a student of servant leadership um, uh, was resulting from that. I'd heard the term before. I had never really known what the concepts were, but we had a leader that did um, that expressed how terribly disappointed he was in us because he felt like he had created an environment and a culture where – and he had leaders in those important positions that were servant leaders, and we failed to uphold the, the standards of – being a servant leader and it was it was uh, for me it was that was soul crushing and I realized how, how, bi- how big of an opportunity I missed and that really shaped me and was an important lesson that uh, as long when, moving forward in my career as long as we're focused on helping people helping other people um, and putting others first before ourselves um, that would make a big difference. It's interesting you bring up servant leadership. I actually just had this conversation with uh, some some managers and service managers, and they I asked them what was important to them, and they talked about servant leadership, and, and I asked them to explain what that meant to them. And, and as they started explaining it, it seemed to go down a path of doing things for other people, and, and I kind of explored it a little further, and I, I, I clarified it for them. I'd be curious to get your perspective that it doesn't mean you're just doing things for people. If, if, a, if a technician has a problem, it doesn't mean you just go out and solve it for them. I said it, it has to do with developing people and making them stronger what they do, not just doing stuff for people so that they don't have to do it. And I, I kind of tried to, at least in my mind, veer them back to what I thought it is. is if you have a problem, I want to help you solve it, but at the end of it, I want you to be better off for it. Not, well, the problem just became my problem. Does that make sense? Yeah, there's a difference between um, it, it's a. I guess a, there's a another kind of quote I've heard. Uh, the difference between being good to people versus good for people, um, and if if they're learning and developing and as part of that, it, that needs to be part of the outcome because that is. Um, that is servant leadership, yeah, and that, yeah. that's a that's a I think a commonly confused. 
uh, concept of of servant leadership. I'm glad you explained that. Yeah, because as, as I as I dug deeper, and the the responses they were giving me started to make me concerned that their view of it was different, at least than than mine. So I I kind of see it very much the way you you do. Um, over the, over the years that I've known you, I've heard you refer to the Vistage a group that you belong to, kind of a business networking group. Um, I've never been involved in it, but but I know you've done it in your time when you were in Texas and now in, in, in Atlanta. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the, the Vistage group? So Vistage is a net, kind of a, a networking group for uh, business leaders. They're usually uh, presidents and CEOs of companies. Um, that there's usually 15 to 18 people in a group. Uh, you meet every month for a day. There's uh, an, usually an educational portion of it. There's um, a session where you're checking in with your peers and seeing how everyone's doing, what's going on with their lives personally, what's going on with, with them professionally, how's the work, how's the job, how, how's their health, uh, what's going on with people. Uh, and then you also help help one another process issues that you may be going through. It, it could be personal issue, could be work issue, um, could be just a general professional uh, issue. And so there's a methodology for how we issue uh, we resolve issues and help process issues. And these are people with a, a lot of experience, um, a lot of knowledge. And so you know, imagine being able to put yourself in a room if you have a business problem with. 18 people and there's you know everything from a person running a, a 50 million dollar comp- IT company to uh, there's a lawyer in the room there's a uh, investment banker in the room there are all kinds of people with all a diverse group of experiences that can all help you res- all be involved with helping you solve tough problems. Yeah, and actually you mentioned the uh, issue resolution, and that, that resonates with me because you, you actually shared a process uh, with our team a while back about issue resolution where we came to the table with an issue, and you walked us through a process that I believe came from Vistage uh, to really kind of, well, I won't steal your thunder, tell the, the audience about this issue resolution process and what it's intended to do. Yeah, so it, first and foremost, it, it starts with defining what the what the issue is. Um, people are allowed to. You, you spend a few minutes uh, expressing what 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 your concern is or what you're trying to tackle. Then there's a period of time where people can ask you questions that are purely information gathering type of questions. It's not to make a judgment or make a recommendation. It's just asking clarifying questions. There's a moderator that helps um, make sure that people are following following the process and not trying to make recommendations too quickly and that people are listening and that you're listening. Your role as someone who's getting an issue process is, is to to be quiet and listen and, and not try to add too much value to the conversation, but to listen to the peers around you. Um, sometimes as you go through that problem, you find out the problem really wasn't the problem. Um, when, you, when you maybe on the surface it appeared to be the the problem was X, but as more discussion went on, the problem could have been something altogether different. Um, and then at the at towards the end, once once you make sure the problem is properly identified, and uh, people have asked their questions, you basically go around the room, and every individual gets to to make a, a recommendation to you about what they think you should do. Um, and you just listen, 
and um, take notes, and then you recap at the end what you heard and what you're going to do about it. And and you're not obligated to take everyone's advice. You can um, um, kind of filter it out and and do what you want. But at the end, the group holds you accountable for your decision. So when you say, based on what I've heard, that I'm going to do take these actions. They'll assign you someone that's going to hold you accountable in that group and that's going to follow up with you. And then you come to the next meeting, You're, you're one of the things that you're going to report on is, I processed this issue last month and here's what's, ha- what's happened since then. Here's what I've done to ensure that you've been held accountable. Because sometimes these are they're, they're tough decisions. They're you know, multi-million dollar decisions or they're people-related decisions, or f- maybe family-related decisions. So um, it's, it's important. If it was important enough to you to bring to the group and that you've got these people spending their time helping you, it's it's important that you follow up and are held accountable to, to taking action. And I imagine with such a, a diverse group, an experienced group of folks in the room, you're getting some pretty insightful questions to challenge your critical thinking to make sure you truly have identified the, the problem and not the symptom, I would imagine. Yeah, and it, it can be very humbling because sometimes they 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 can see right through certain things. If you're too close to something, you're um, too involved, or maybe you're, you know, that saying, you're not, you're not, you can't see the forest through the trees. Um, they can help you break that down and, and really identify what's going on. And, and um, you know, you're, you're kind of standing there naked mm-hmm. and, and exposed to, to the process. Yeah, I can imagine sometimes a leader, especially they've been a role a long time, can almost be too close to the situation and they need to be pulled back and have just outsiders ask them questions to make them think uh, think differently and sometimes take the emotion out of out of some of those decisions yeah interesting uh, another question I'm curious about is is I don't know if you're a big big book reader uh, is there any leadership books or that that particularly resonate with you or, or ones that that you've really enjoyed over the years um, so I went through I went through a probably about a six year spurt of time where I read a great deal. Um, since then, I've found that a lot of the books that are out there on the market, are it's the same stuff regurgitated different ways. And I've, I've really gotten bored with um, reading a lot of the new content. Because even when you go back in history and you read some of the old school leadership books from the 50s and 60s, you go back to Peter Drucker, some of those old, old concepts not a lot of that's changed all that much. It's just being repackaged a lot in these different books. So there hasn't been a, a in recent time a lot of books that have um, had an impact on on me or that I thought were like just kind of big aha books. How, however, I will say the one book that had the most impact on me it goes back to you brought up the the name Marshall Goldsmith back. Gosh, I want to say it was probably ten years ago. Thereabouts, he wrote a book called "What Got You Here Won't Get You There." That was a changing, that was a life-changing book because basically what it says is there's certain things that you do and certain behaviors and actions and and uh, things that you're doing as a leader that have gotten you to this place in your career or gotten you, you know, if you're, a, say, a service manager or a branch manager, it got you and made you really good at that job. But those those same skills and doing more of that 
may not be what gets you to the next level or makes you an even better performer. Um, and it really helps identify. I think there were about 20, 20 things that uh, in the book that you kind of look at and cause you causes you to also look in the mirror and um, say, well, that gee, that sounds like me. That sounds like something I would do. Um, and so reading that book really helped um, for me to identify some of those things. And at the same time, I was able to use that book with a lot of the people that, that I worked with that, that were my direct reports at that time to also help develop them. Um, so it, that was there was a trickle-down effect with a lot of um, aha moments for the people I worked with in, in reading that for their own development. It's an interesting perspective because I guess conventional wisdom says if, if I continue to work my way through an organization into positions of, uh, of, of additional authority, you think, we know, let me – let me keep using the things that got me there. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. But you reach a point where it might be a different skill set that you have to use to operate at the level that you're at now. And I guess you're saying that book kind of helps you understand that, hey, you might have to change a little bit to, to, to be able to be successful in the role that you're in. Yeah, you always have to change. You always have to adapt. You can, and you can never adopt that, uh, the mindset that, gee, I've arrived. You know, this is what I've been working for, and I've arrived because that's one of the most dangerous things. And I see, I see that at our company where you have some people that ramp up their careers pretty quickly, and then just stop, and you see them kind of plateau. Yeah. In part, I think that's. In, in part, I think it's because they didn't take the initiative themselves to try to move forward and and raise raise the bar. They. Because they took that attitude, I've arrived, I've got this, I thought this was my dream dream job. At the same time, it's also their boss's responsibility to say, hey, shake them up a little bit and say, hey, you you have the opportunity to do more. There's some behaviors and some actions that you need to take that can – that can do that, and you need to be willing to do that. So creating that conversation with those folks. I I see some people that are incredibly talented at our company that I felt like had someone – Talked to them and gotten through them, or or they had read that book at a at a key point in their life. It could have made it. It could have made a change, and they could have gone a lot further in their career if they wanted to. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up, and, and you know if this is this is all about your experience. But but I will tell you, you gave me that experience over the last year in a, in a training program that I had the opportunity to go to, uh, where I was away for darn near two weeks, and and as I reflected on the time being away and the content that I learned. Um, it was so interesting when I came back. I remember talking to the folks at work and, and my own wife about uh, just the way they challenged my critical thinking. And, and they kind of pushed you out of your comfort zone. And it was really it, – it's interesting. Um, the, the type of speakers you hear from, I think, to your point, leaders have to be willing to constantly be learning. And that was one experience that I had that uh, I, I'm very fortunate, very fortunate to have had. Um, one of the things I've heard you talk about to groups before that, that – I've had people tell me it made a difference for them was how you stay focused on your goals. You had shared some perspective of how you personally um, stay focused on not only your business goals, but maybe even your personal goals around kind of setting time aside for yourself. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, amongst those books I've I've referred to when I went through that six-year spurt, I really got – Heavily, uh, I became like a cult-like follower of, of Benjamin Franklin, and I was reading everything I could possibly find about Benjamin Franklin. And, and when you read his autobiography, um, and and many of the biographies, but in in particular his autobiography, 
one of the things of all the things that that guy did, which um, incredible litany of, inve- of inventions and public service um, and politics, all the kinds of things. What, one of the things that he said, or the thing that he said he was the most proud of, was his, his the impact that his, that his goal of living a virtuous life had upon him. So one of the things ben, Benjamin Franklin did that he said he was most proud of was he made a list of of things that were important to him. Certain, mostly they were behaviors um, that he was very disciplined about tracking every single day, and he kept a journal. And he listed those things out, and he measured himself or graded himself on those things every single day. I think he had a list of about 13 uh, 13 items on his list um, that he tracked every single day. And and he would do it for a year or six months. Then he'd stop for a while, and he'd find that, hey, I've gotten complacent on some of these things, or I'm not doing these things as well as I could be. And he'd start tracking it again. And I guess over his life, he he had done this off and on for the vast majority of his life. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, so I ended up stealing some things from his list that I thought were important. At the same time, I also added some things to the list that were important for me. And gosh, probably I uh, started this 10, 11 years ago of just keeping a journal and um, checking off those boxes. As I got good at something, I maybe would take something off and add something else onto the list that I wanted to work on. And the more I tracked and measured it, the more I uh, became aware and more self-aware of the things that I was trying to improve uh, by every day sitting down and reflecting upon how did I do it in my communications, for example, with other with the people I work with, was I a good communicator? Um, how did I make feet? What kind of impact did I have on other people today as I went through my day? Was it a positive impact or a negative impact? So I would, at the end of the day, reflect on all those things, um, and I could. And for me, it was giving myself a check, or I didn't get a check, and then I would tally up at the end of the week. You know, how many had a out of seven days, how many checks did I get in that category? And, oh, gee, I want to work on um, one that I'm not doing well. So I've done that myself now off and on for about 11 years. I could pull out a drawer full of little journals with paper with check boxes and lists on them where I've done that over the years. So it's it's been important to me. So it's interesting you bring that up. So we were – we were recently talking about you that, you know, we have a, a leadership meeting coming up in, in February and we're working on the content. And as you know, we invited you to the meeting and we were trying to figure out, okay, what would be the best topics to discuss? And two people on my team came and said, you know, Jerry delivered some some great information around what you just described that to that audience they thought really resonated. So I'll give you a heads up. We're probably going to ask you to do something like that with our managers because it really resonated with the audience at that time. So there's a little advance notice for February. Okay, great. Um, the other thing I want to ask you about, so how you hear a lot of people talk about culture in, in businesses. How important would you, dis, would you say culture is in a company? I think uh, an overall company's health in general is defined by its culture. Um, you know how a company behaves, um, how the people behave. It, it's all crafted and shaped by culture. So um, without that right culture, and you know, there's tons of companies out there that all have different cultures, and there's not a right culture. The the culture is for um, is that company's identity that's crafted crafted by the leadership 
but then kind of owned and the responsibility of shaping and evolving that culture is owned by the, the people within the organization to be able to uh, both preserve it and let it evolve and, and be what they want it to be. Yeah, I asked you that because, uh, you know, looking at some of the businesses that you've you've led over the years, the one common theme that everybody agrees about is the culture in those organizations is just rock solid. And I use Home Team as an example. I mean, that culture is as is, 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 is good as anything I've ever seen. It's just, in fact, we I often try to emulate some of the things they're doing and, and copy things because they uh, they just do a great job. And I know you absolutely had a big hand in that. So, um, so I appreciate your perspective. So, um, Jerry, I, listen. I just want to thank you for joining us today. You have uh, you've, you've certainly had a great career. Uh, I know there's still a lot ahead for you. There's a lot we can learn from you. There's a lot you can uh, value you can bring to other people. But thanks for at least sharing a, a few minutes today with with our audience on some of your uh, what's made you successful and some some tips for the audience. We certainly appreciate it. Um, well, we have reached the end of another episode of Consider This with Western Pest. We really do enjoy the chance to bring you topics we hope you find interesting, insightful, and helpful. We'd also love to hear from you on topics of interest. Tell us what you want to hear, and we'll be happy to look at it. You can reach us at westernpest.com, or you can email me at mbretz at westernpest.com. That's M-B-R-E-T-Z at westernpest.com. We also have a friendly request. We would love to have you subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud. I'd like to thank my guest today, Jerry Galoff. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. You're a super host. Thanks.